Good morning, St. Michael's. It is a delight for me and for Stephanie to be here. She will wave in the back left there. Uh, we are delighted to be here this morning. And um, I want to thank uh, particularly everyone who's been involved in uh, preparing our confirmands. Uh, I am grateful for both the leadership and uh, friendship of uh, Father Chris uh, and um, all of you. Um, it is, it's just good to be here. In the name of God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. The signs all, all around me, I get the discount now at the Angelica movie theater, and I am immediately brought the cheaper alternative menu at Denny's. I recently went to the ophthalmologist for an issue, and he said to me, good news, bad news. I see the normal retina of an old man. But of course, I am ready for this. A few years back, I mentioned being in late middle age, to which my 18-year-old chirped back quickly, don't kid yourself, early old age. More seriously, I run into the nub of the issue from time to time as bishop, talking to people about clergy retirement. In our culture, we are defined by what we do. Doctor, caregiver, teacher defines who we are, and when that's gone, what's left of me? Of course, it doesn't stop there. A layoff, a midlife change of course, and we are led to ask basic questions, one being doing versus being. Several of the great philosophers of the 20th century like to talk about what they called limit situations, by which they meant the things in our lives that break through the ordinary routine of our doing and pose a more fundamental question. A natural disaster, a diagnosis, a trauma that will not lie quietly in our memory. They are limit moments which raise the question, who am I? Now, faith is meant to challenge us as it reassures us. One way it does this is to reframe our questions out there at the limits out there at the edge of our minds. So this morning, I believe faith would reframe our question instead of being and doing. Let's think about it in terms of doing and receiving. Our culture is relentlessly activist. It is hectic. Consider, for example, Zen Buddhism. Only Americans could take Zen Buddhism and turn it into an industry. We are doers. Think with me this morning, however, about all the things you have just plain received. Many things over which you have had no say and no control. Feel how uncomfortable every facet of pure receiving makes us. Your parents, there was no prenatal shopping available. As a result, your genetic profile, 
your early life experiences. You had some input, the input there, but not so much. Your neighborhood where you grew up. Add most of what we take to be the world around us. If culture is all the things we assume are true without having to ask, then most of our worldview, even the parts we consciously resist, are inherited. As life goes on, obviously you and I get more agency. But then getting sick, while it may have to do with our failures at self-care, feels like luck of the draw. Being in the wrong or right place at a particular moment matters, and no one chooses his or her death. All of this is one reason why end-of-life choice is so big a deal in our culture. We, at some level, are disturbed and offended that the biggest things in life happen to us they're things we receive and not things we do. The same could be said for many of the best things in life. We do make choices in relationships, but there is a side of love that happens to us too. It is also a gift, and that is why it has that dimension of mystery and surprise. The Christian faith and its life have to do, first of all, with receiving and not doing. God made you and he asks for no input. He utters his word and you're in my task, like the first lesson Samuel and Saul is to listen. His son died for my sins, whether I think I need it or not. He gives me eternal life to which I could not possibly make any contribution. He sends you out as a disciple and a servant, not a partner, though Jesus does surprise us by saying we are also his friends. Here in church, you come most of all, I come most of all, to be spoken to, washed, fed, to listen to my father's voice, to be healed. And all of that sounds like the life of a child. It is why you and I must accept, says Jesus, the kingdom of heaven with the hearts of children. It is beautiful, mysterious, freeing, the kind of reality we usually perceive only out there at the limit. So what got me onto this other than my early old age ruminations about Father Time? Today's gospel is all about access to God. That is what the people of God in Jesus' time thought they had lost. They believed the Spirit had abandoned the temple in the day of the exile centuries before. The prophetic voice of God had gone silent. They longed for the day when that voice and that spirit would return. It is not hard for us in our own individual 
and modern ways to feel something comparable. Have we not wondered if God were not somehow sequestered on some of our days into a distant province of heaven? In the movie Darkest Hour, which incidentally is excellent, Churchill says the following about his father. He was like God busy elsewhere. Who has not felt something similar to that? Now today's passage from the first chapter of the Gospel of John answers this sense and this anxiety. The disciples-to-be realize that this Jesus has remarkable powers of insight into their lives. And Jesus answers them by saying, in essence, you don't know the half of it. He is indeed the one they have been waiting for, God's anointed. His appearing is the coming of the kingdom of God. Where he shows up, it is the return of the Spirit. And his appearance in human history, the immediate presence of the king of the universe. Here is what he says. You will see heavens opened and the angels descending and ascending on the Son of Man. The reference is to the story in the book of Genesis about Jacob. He was on the run for his life. He goes to sleep. He hears about a blessing he shall receive from God. And then in his dream, he has the vision of a ladder which gives him access to heaven, access to God. Literally, angels descending and ascending from there to here. As a result, a temple was built on the site of his dream, and it was called Bethel, which means house of God. The day of the fulfillment once more of the promise to Jacob for a ladder to heaven has in the appearance of Jesus come. But notice with me what more is said in the gospel. We are told that no longer shall we build temples on sacred sites. There is one sacred site, and that is Jesus. Through him runs the ladder. And the context of the passage in chapter 1 is the news of the incarnation. That the God of heaven and earth has dwelt with us in Jesus Christ. We are told that none of us has ever seen God. God has had to show himself to us, specifically in his son Jesus. In other words, there is a ladder, but it runs through him. Wherever faith is found, that site is Bethel. And really, the direction of the traveling, if you listen to chapter 1 in, as a whole, and the gospel as a whole, it is all downward. God traveled to us. God ended the impasse. And God's voice broke the silence. The incarnation is God's dwelling with us. And as for ascent, well, there is an ascent. It is the ascent 
of Jesus to the right hand of his Father where he makes intercession for you and me. So let's put it baldly and provocatively. Christianity is about receiving God's Son who has descended to be with us. The momentum is all from there to here, from Him to be with us. How could it be different? There is nothing in us equipped to do otherwise. No spark of the divine, no superhuman power to climb. Half the books in Barnes and Noble in that spirituality section, they are about climbing the ladder about which the gospel knows nothing. Real Christianity, it's spirituality, they are all receptivity, humility, and a radical focus on Jesus, the incarnate Son of God, now gone on high for us. Let me put it another way. St. Augustine, the 5th century theologian bishop, called the Doctor of Grace, like to put the matter this way. God is the one who can never be used. He can only be enjoyed. In other words, we don't believe in God and follow what he says primarily to make our lives better or to get anything. God is not a means to anything. Not something we use to get what we need. God the potter we the clay, he the maker and the doer, we the made and the done for. Augustine believed that Christian worship is useless. It is also what you and I were made to do. Now it turns out that attending to what you were made to do does have various good effects. Scientists have studied and found that people who pray have lower blood pressure. The one who gives to the poor makes his or her neighborhood better. You and I are to seek God's kingdom and his righteousness first, says Jesus, and then other things are added to us. And since we are what we are, we humans will get the order of things wrong continually, and need the humility, please God, to put us back in the right order, which is why church is an ongoing business Sunday by Sunday. At this point, you may be asking or saying, wait a minute. In confirmation class, they gave me a list of things I ought to do. Stewardship, for example. Serving on the outreach committee. Learning about my faith. Praying every day, it's a good list and it goes on. Sounds like doing is making a big time comeback. The same could be said of most sermons, which have their own kind of works righteousness. Believe more, surrender more, be more humble, receive more. That is why preachers need mercy too. So yes, each of us has doing to do but only after we have heard the message that we have received it all and grasp more strongly how we are doing in order to live into this life of gift. Learning 
to have a discipline of remembering gratitude. And by the way, the first chapter of John also tells us that if we think and live that way, we realize that we are the children of God, born again as if from our mothers anew. And all of that is pretty cool for those of us who realize we are in dawning 